Anyway, let's pray. Uh, thank you for putting up with our housekeeping event, and we'll get, uh, we'll get going in Romans. Father, we thank you for interesting and comp- complex books of Romans. Uh, we thank you for this time. Uh, Spirit, again, we ask that, you be, that uh, we would be sensitive to your presence and your leading through this. In your name we pray. Amen. This is our second week of Romans. And for those of you who heard the sermon last week, uh, Richard talked at all six of our locations, and he had the story of, on how we arrived at Romans for our, our next series. And he said that not all of the lead pastors were in favor of it. I was one of the ones who was not. And so we got an, an email saying, hey, we're going to look at Romans as, as a possible series, uh, or we're going to do Romans in the fall. And I read that email and went, oh, no, no way. And I texted another one of the lead pastors and I said, how hard is it going to be to change his mind? And we tried. And it, we failed miserably. Because Romans, for me, is one of those books that it, it's like going to the dentist. How many of you enjoy going to the dentist? You liars. Okay. For the normal ones of us, the dentist. It's something where it's like, I know I need to go. I haven't been in like three years. I know I need to go to the dentist. It's not true. I've been recently. But, it, but I know it's going to be really good for me if I go. That's how Romans is. It's one of these books that is so dense theologically. There's a lot of good theology that comes from it. There's a lot of harmful and bad theology that has its origin in Romans. It's one of those books that carries with it a stigma. Lawyers love Romans because they say it's written like it's a law document. And so this is just one of those very heady books. In college, I took a two-semester class on Romans. And they said, if you're taking Romans, clear your schedule because it's all you're going to live. And they were right. We had to handwrite it twice, like word by word, in different translations. We had to do a bunch of word studies. And so Romans took up this. And so I come to it with this stigma of, oh my, this is going to be hard. And it's going to be heavy. And it is. Romans is a heavy book. But it's like going to the dentist. It is good. It's a gut punch type of book where Paul is really making the point that, hey, we need to look at ourselves and look at ourselves honestly through it. Paul writes Romans in a a way of an argument. He's he's arguing with an imaginary person. It's called a diatribe. Uh, it's, It's like, how many of you have arguments in the shower? You ever did this? Like you have this pretend person in front of you and you like say you're rehearsing a tough conversation you're going to have with your boss. I'm going to say this and then they're going to say this and then I'm going to rebut their argument with this and I'm going to win. We always win when we argue in the shower. If it's not the shower, it's the car. I'm most convincing when I'm by myself. And then I try it. Say Carrie and I get in a discussion and, uh, and I've rehearsed this one and I try my rehearsal and I'm like two lines in, and I'm already lost. It's, and so, but Paul is writing this as one of those shower or car arguments where he's, he's predicting this person's response, and he's combating against it. So he's writing to the church in Rome who have some issues. As Richard described last week, and this was one of the things that when he told us as a teaching team why we're looking at Romans was so convincing. We looked at the church in Rome, and they're deeply deeply divided on every part of where you could be divided they found divisions 
And Paul is writing to them. And as we get later on in Romans, we get to verses chapters 15 and 16 and where it comes all together. He says, be united. But like a good doctor, Paul has to do a whole assessment of the church and, and diagnose all of the symptoms of their fracturedness. And so Paul starts with them. He starts early. In the first chapter, he says, this is humanity's problem. This is all of humanity's problem. They have been given over. They have changed. Uh, they have substituted what was natural and, 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 and given to idolatry. And he just lists out everything. Things that we all do. Gossip. Talking back to your parents. Everything. And so we can look at that and go, wow, that's an indictment. But when Paul writes it, he's writing it to a, a set of people. And part of those people are Jewish people. And, he's looking at, and they're looking at it going, yes. Those people are horrible. And so they're reading, and Paul's, Paul's, in their mind, he's talking about Gentiles. And so the Jewish people are reading it going, yeah, I'm sure glad I'm not a Gentile. And they're looking at it going, this Paul guy's right. Those people are terrible. They're on a highway to hell, and they're going 95 miles an hour. They're going to get there soon. And so this is what they're thinking. But Paul comes back and says, hold up for a second. You who are reading this, also have some heart conditions. You're also guilty of this. And so in in chapter 2, I think Paul shows us uh, two heart conditions that stand in the way of our unity. And then he offers us an antidote. The first heart condition that he brings up is this heart condition of hypocrisy. It's It's what I just explained. The Jewish Christians are reading this going, man, those Gentile Christians, they're so terrible. They don't have the national history. They don't have the way of life. Uh, they, they display everything that's wrong with humanity. That's what's wrong with our culture. It's those people. And so they, they puff themselves up. And Paul comes to them and says, Hey, you, in verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, you who are reading this are also without excuse. In other words, you're doing the same thing. Paul uses this type of of writing that you can see in the book of Amos. Amos does this thing where he's writing to the king and he starts listing off sins of countries and, and areas that are far away from the king. And so he'd, he'd come here and go, hey, have you heard the evil that's happening in Tacoma? And we'd be going, yeah, those people, they're, they're off. And then a couple minutes later he goes, have you heard what's happening in Tukwila? Yeah, who lives in a place called Tukwila? They're strange too. And then he comes up a little further. Have you heard what's happening in West Seattle? Yeah, they're hippies out there. They're strange. They got problems. And then he comes up to Queen Anne. And then he goes, oh yeah, Ballard. And we go, oh, us too. You are therefore without excuse. This is what Paul is getting at. He goes to show that you who sit and judge the people far away are guilty of the same things you've been judging. He says this in, in, in the second chapter, you who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge another. You are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. He's looking at a heart problem that each and every single one of us have. We do this, it's hypocrisy. But Paul is saying that they too, even though they, even though they put themselves in a better place, even though they try and act and put up a facade that they have everything together, he's saying you secretly do the same thing. And of course, not every person in the church that day was looking back at chapter one and going, I'm guilty of this. 
but in some way or another, they were. We can look around and say, oh, I don't, at least I don't do what, what this person's doing. At least I'm not addicted to this. At least I'm not having an affair. At least I'm not that bad of a gossip. But Paul, what Paul is saying is if, if a piece of glass is broken, the whole glass is broken. It's not that you can get by and say, I'm okay, I just do this a little bit. Paul's saying, no, sin is sin is sin is sin. There's no degrees, there's no levels. The smallest one and the biggest one all leave you in the same place. Paul's saying, you're guilty of all of this, and because of that, you are held without excuse. But to go around and pretending, this is what Rome was doing, I don't know if we did the same thing, but to go around and pretend like you're a better person, to go around and say that I'm, I'm immune to this, at least I'm not that bad, and then we start judging the other people. Paul is saying this is when things go awry. In verse 21, he, he kind of lays it more out. He says, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? It's sort of like Lance Armstrong would sit here and say, here is how to play without cheating. Or if Kanye West would teach a class on humility. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Their hypocrisy is stealing the way the church should operate. Their hypocrisy was standing in the way of unity. Because when you're dealing with people who are hypocrites, automatically you lose their trust and it becomes more and more frustrating to be around them. I used to work at Home Depot. I had an orange apron. I worked in the flooring department. I could sell tile. Could not install it, but I could sell it. And so I, which is probably the requirement for what I was doing. Uh, th- there was a supervisor that we had. He was the manager over our department. And he was always late. I'm not talking like five, ten minutes late. He was 45 an hour late consistently. And so we'd all get frustrated because sometimes I'd be waiting to go home until this guy would show up and I'd have to wait longer and longer and longer. I was paid by the hour, didn't mind. Where where it got frustrating was when I would show up one minute late, I'd get chewed out. And the hypocrisy of this, it wasn't just me, it was the other people in the department, the hypocrisy of this man who would yell at everybody for being two minutes late, yet was an hour late consistently, got frustrating, and it wore us down. The hypocrisy of that allowed us or paved the way for us not to trust, not to follow. He had no leadership with us. It was annoying. The New Testament has a lot to say about hypocrisy. The Old Testament has dozens of things to say about hypocrisy. Jesus talks about hypocrisy as of me having, a, Richard said it last week, a fir tree in my eye and a piece of sawdust in yours. Hypocrisy is me making fun of your sawdust when I have a log in mine. Uh, Paul talks about hypocrisy in Galatians. He confronts the apostle Peter to his face for being a hypocrite. In Galatians 2, Peter, or Paul is saying, this is what I told Peter. Peter liked to keep people who were uh, not Jewish away from the table. And so he wouldn't have fellowship with them, wouldn't have dinner with them. He kept them away. And Paul confronts him in Galatians and says, look, you know better than this. You believe this, but you're acting like this. You're a hypocrite. Stop it. Hypocrisy is a menace to the integrity of the church. 
And Paul says, in order for the church to have unity, in order for the church to have any voice, hypocrisy must be dealt with. If Romans 2 was possibly written to today's church, it might read something like this. Well then, you who preach on Sundays, what do you do Monday and Saturday, between Monday and Saturday? We preach grace, yet we burden others with our own list of rules of how to gain grace. We like to work for social justice, yet do we fight for the lives of the unborn? unborn? And do you, do, do you equally fight for the dignity of every person who's alive? When we claim to be pro-families, fam, pro do we invest our time and energy in your spouse and children? We say don't commit adultery, yet porn addictions, emotional affairs, and the hookup culture runs wild within the church. Hypocrisy has turned into a threat to the church. Christians claim that God has transformed them to be a force of good, yet many Christians live the completely different lives outside of Sunday mornings. Brendan Manning, the famous theologian, said it this way, uh, atheism, or hypocrisy, is the single cause of atheism. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And Paul says this in verse 24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a gut punch, right? Reading this, the hypocrisy, and all of us have a little bit of this in our lives. And it's not really the Gentiles where God's name is blasphemed. We can say that and God's name is blasphemed all over the internet because of hypocrisy. Paul says if you want to have unity in your church, you need to start by dealing with the facade and the condition of hypocrisy. The second condition that is destroying the church stems from hypocrisy, it's arrogance. He says this, at the root of all hypocrisy is a smug sense of superiority. And he, get, he alludes to this in verse five. But because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Stubbornness and unrepentant. Those words are both used one time in the New Testament right here. Your arrogance, your hypocrisy, it's causing you to be stubborn and unrepentant. And he says, and it's ruining the church. We tend to become arrogant on just about anything, right? We could be arrogant on our team choice and wear Seahawks jerseys to a neutral territory. It is neutral. Uh, or, or we can, we can have a, a, a too much of a national arrogance or an ethnic arrogance or an individual arrogance or a political party arrogance. We don't have any of that, right? Uh, where if you don't vote my way and I don't vote your way, then we're both evil, we shouldn't even talk. This arrogance comes in and it starts dividing people on the lines. We can even get arrogant on food preference. Vegans don't like meat eaters, don't like vegetarians, and all of a sudden we're fighting. And what do we eat at a potluck? Broth. <laughs> but we start dividing because of arrogance. And the tragedy is this. That whenever we become more convinced that we are better than somebody else on any level, we begin to treat everybody with disrespect. The Jews in Rome had this superiority complex with them. They were Jewish. 
They had the line of Abraham coming to them. They were members of the covenant. They had been circumcised, which meant that you were part of the covenant. It goes back to Genesis. You were circumcised to be a part of it. And so they had this puffed up feeling about them. They were supposed to be God's light and virtue to the world because they were Jewish. And instead of being God's light and virtue to the world, they began to say, I'm better than everybody else, rather than I want to show people what God is like. Instead of representing God, they started representing a mindset, and they became puffed up and proud, and they started separating themselves from the very people they were supposed to be guiding. The problem was even though they had all of these things that did set them apart They didn't let those things change them. They had all the answers, but they had forgotten where they had come from. They had forgotten their purpose. They had forgotten that just hearing the law, just being a part of the law, wasn't enough. They actually had to live it out. So Paul says in verse 13, For it is not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Hearing the law and doing the law are completely different things. Being aware of something and actually doing it is totally different concepts. I am very aware, very aware, that I should not make bacon with my shirt off. We've tried it, right? How many of you have been close to cooking bacon when you're grilling it? What does the grease do? splatters everywhere. What does Brad try and do? It's hot. I want to make it with my shirt off. And what do I do? It's a bad visual. (laughs) But it works. I'm standing too close to the end. What happens? I start getting pelted with boiling grease and it's painful. I know better. And Carrie tells me that every time. You know better. I know, but I wanted to see maybe if I stood back a little bit, maybe that would help. Knowing something and doing something are completely different. The people of Israel knew the law, they had the law, but, the, 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 but what it was intended to do wasn't really doing it. They were intended to be a light to the world, to show everyone around them how good God was, and instead it made them arrogant, and then it made them puffed up, and then they, had, they started telling everybody that, that because they weren't circumcised, They can never be a Christian or they can never follow God. And Paul says this, your circumcision or you being a part of the Jewish culture or you being a part of the covenant has value only if you observe the law. But if they break the law, you have become as though you hadn't even been circumcised. So it's good if you actually do it. And then he continues, so then, verse 26, if those who aren't circumcised keep the law's requirements, that will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically, yet obeys the law, will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. You follow what he's saying? The people who aren't Jewish, who aren't in the covenant, when they obey the law, the thing that you're not obeying, they make you a lawbreaker, even though you have all the right signs and every, all the right beliefs, you become a lawbreaker. It's not your theology that has to be right. It's your heart. 
but we like to hide behind theology. We like to know the right answers. We like to think that we have everything set in stone. It's easy for us to take uh, comfort in a theological argument. It's as though we use theological arguments to dance around what God is actually trying to teach us, and we start rationalizing our behavior. We'll argue, and I see it all the time, we'll argue culture, we'll argue context, we'll argue quotes from commentaries and opinions, we'll say blogs, we'll post tweets, we'll look at Instagram, and all in a way that might deflect what the Spirit of God is trying to tell us. We start rationalizing our way, and we use theology to do it. Theology is good, but theology can also turn to bad uses. We like to appeal to God's character and the riches of his kindness. We say God is tolerant, he's gracious, he's patient, and he is. But we'll argue those rather than change the way we live. We think that we can sin with impunity because God is all of those things, and we start to puff ourselves up. We misapply and argue scripture to our advantage, and then we'll start saying the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. But when we do this, We fall into the same line that the people in Rome that Paul is writing to were doing and we manipulate theology for our own advantage and then we show contempt for God. It's not faith. It's not growing. It's a presumption. It's taking advantage of something. It's arrogant. It's hypocritical. It's a facade that we have. God's grace, God's kindness will always lead towards repentance. It never leads towards justifying an action. Jesus, and to be more like Jesus, is the goal. It's the only goal. Hypocrisy leads to arrogance, and arrogance leads to being puffed up and separating yourself. And so Paul comes out, and like a good doctor says, this is your problem. This is one of many problems that he'll address. This is it. You're hypocritical, and you're arrogant. But there's a solution. How many of you have ever gone to a doctor, and he's diagnosed you with something? And then he says, this is your problem. Okay, see you later. It's not what good doctors do, right? Good doctors will come. They'll look at you. I went to a doctor on Tuesday, and we looked at an MRI result I had. And he goes, oh, you have a torn tendon, a fractured labrum, and, and a dislocated tendon. So you got some problems. And th- did he leave me there? No, he says, and here's a referral. Where there's something more you can do. Here's what Paul's doing. He says, this is your problem, but here's a referral. You need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. You don't need something else just to hang on you to make yourself look better. You need to change from within. Look at verse 28 and 29. A person who is not a Jew, who is only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not a written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Carrie and I used to live in this house in Green Lake. It was the first house we moved in. We were totally stoked to live there. It was probably 50 yards from the lake. And so we, we did walks. It was, it was awesome. We had tubes. Tim lived in our basement. It was, it was, it was a cool place until Tim moved. And then, uh, but it, it, was, it was a fun place to live. It was wonderful. When we first moved in, we were getting set. And we had those string lights, the, the ones with the light bulbs that hang down, and they're cute. And so uh, we started, I started hanging them, and I'd tap into the wood, and the hook wouldn't grab. There were some problems. 
And I, and I started digging around and, and growing up in the construction house, I know how to really ruin things, right? And I, I started, I peeled back part of the wood just to look what's back there. And it, sure enough, behind all of this pretty ornate uh, facade was dry rot. The whole deck was dry watered on top. And the hooks wouldn't grab right. They had done a good job at covering up everything. But the core of the deck was rotted away. And it was, I had to call the landlord and say, hey, this thing is really bad. And as we lived there, he kept saying, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to fix it. And the whole thing started to collapse as we were, then three months before he moved out, he finally fixed it. But there was this, this whole thing. It looked good from the outside. It looked great from the outside. The inside was rotting away. This is what Paul is saying. You have all of the right answers. You have the code. You have the law. Many of them would have it memorized by the time they were 12. They knew it. And it was all on the outside. The inside was rotting away. And so Paul says, hey, in order for you to, ha- to get rid of this problem of arrogance and hypocrisy, you're going to need a new heart. We need new hearts. We put up facades all the time in the church. Our marriage might be in shambles, but we put up the facade that everything is going great, but we don't talk when we get home. You might put up the facade that you have all the answers, that you're doing great, but when you get alone by yourself, you think that everyone's against you. You're insecure. You're up all night. You can't stop drinking. The problems come back. We put up these facades. We think we have it all figured out, but we're lonely and we're barely hanging by a string. We put on these facades to hide ourselves, to hide the rot that we're so afraid of because we're fearful of what people might say about us. So we want to say, no, 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 everything's fine. I'm good. How are you? Perfect. Good day to you. We do that. But we're dying inside. And Paul says, look, Jesus has come not so that you can have a good facade. Jesus has come, the Spirit has come to breathe into those places where there's dry rot, where things are falling apart, and breathe new life into those places and put them back together again. This is the hope of resurrection. This is why Jesus is here. But our fear, our fear is what keeps us from experiencing that. Our fear keeps us from running to Christ. Our fear keeps us hiding And that's what facades do. It's what happened in Genesis 3. God comes down. They've eaten the apple or whatever fruit it was. Pomegranate, who knows? Make make up your mind. They eat it. God comes down and says, where are you? They were hiding. Why? Fear. Our fear keeps us hiding because we're afraid that if we confess that we're broken, that God's going to be mad at us. We're afraid if we actually say what our condition, that he's going to push us away. We're afraid if we say we have doubts, that we can no longer believe. We have all of these things lined up and all of these presumptions about who God is that keep us at bay. And they keep the dry rot and the facades being built. But what does Paul say in the first part of this chapter? You show contempt for the riches of his kindness. The forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance. The only way that we can experience a new life inside first comes by, by admitting that you need new life inside. It's simple repentance. 
I'm dry. It's rotting away. I need new life. And God, in his kindness and his patience, hears that, forgives, and breathes new life into you. Paul is saying a lot here. But what he says, it goes back to Deuteronomy 30, where God used the same metaphor to express his desire for his people, that they would know him, body, soul, spirit, that the spirit would breathe into them a new life. What God wanted for Israel in Deuteronomy is what God wants for you. He wants the kind of change that is inward, not another rule, not another law, not another facade. He wants the inward change. He says this in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities, all of your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees so that you will be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land of your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. He wants to breathe life into you. Does this ring any bells when you look at scriptures? The first action God does towards humans is he breathes life into them. It's the same word, your spirit, the life. When, when Jesus breathes into the people, in his disciples in the upper room, same word, breathes life into them, gives them the spirit, and then it enables them, it, it powers them, it heals them. This is what he wants to do to us. Many of us feel rotted inside. God says, I want to breathe the new life into you. I want you to experience my spirit. I want you to feel whole again. He wants this for you. He wants you to pursue goodness. He wants you to repent, not so he can set you up for failure, but so he can renew you. He wants a genuine repentance and receiving the gifts of God's goodness. His broken body, which was shed, which was broken for you. His blood, which was poured out for you so that we can be whole again. Together, these elements that we'll celebrate today show us what Jesus wants to do for each and every one of us is to give us new life. But first, we've got to drop the facade. We've got to say, God, I'm tired of pretending I'm tired of trying to act like I have all the answers because I don't. Tired of acting like I'm better because I really am not. All of us have the strain of hypocrisy. All of us have the strain of arrogance. And it's time that we repent of it and let the Spirit of God come into our hearts and actually start changing us. I had a hard conversation with one of my uh, professors in my master's program. We're learning all this theology and I'm just, it's just not kicking in and I'm just getting bored. It's, and I'm, I'm frustrated because I feel like there was, there was more and, 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 and I'm just stagnant in faith, right? We've had those seasons where you just dry. And my prof pulls me aside and he says, Brad, you're getting good grades. That's fun. I mean, everyone wants good grades. You're passing. Uh, but I'm afraid it's not going any deeper than your head. And it's because you got some heart problems. And what God is wanting to do, and he was a very honest professor, I appreciate that, was he said God wants to take away those hard places of your heart and put a soft one in. He wants to break it so you can rebuild it. He wants to put this spirit in you 
so that you can actually know and experience him rather than just know the answers and facts about him. So today, what part of your heart needs to be broken so that God can put it back together? What part of the facade needs to be torn out, taken away so that they can put fresh wood inside and shore it up and make it sustainable? What areas do you need to begin to repent of? What's keeping you from that new heart and that new life? And what are you afraid of? God's kindness encourages us to repent. He's merciful and gracious, but he has some standards. And he wants us to repent and get back to it. Today we're taking communion. It's a perfect time for us to pause and before you take, uh, participate in communion, pause, ask God those same questions. What's my heart problems? What are the hard places that I need carved out? Where do I need some heart work in mine? And before you, before you come, ask those questions and be sensitive to what the Spirit might be leading you to do. Maybe it's time, maybe you take communion and instead of going back to your seat, you go spend some time in prayer. Maybe you write some stuff down. This is what God is sharing me. If you'd like to pray with somebody, we have prayer teams that are willing to be praying for you and with you at this time. But we're going to pause. I'm going to pray. Our communion uh, service will come forward. And when you're ready, come, participate in communion. But don't let the work stop there. See where God is leading you and what we should do next. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you call us, you, uh, you equip us, and you want to breathe new life into our, into our bodies. The places that are old and decrepit and dying and the places where we're tired of hiding, Lord, I pray that your spirit would begin to work in, in our minds and in our hearts now and you would go and point those things out to us today. And we'd be able to confess to you and then receive the new life that you have for us. Spirit, would you uh, begin to breathe on us now? Breathe into those places. Like Ezekiel, you promised You'll take these hearts of stone and make them into a heart of flesh. Maybe more than head knowledge. In Jesus' name.